0: hello and welcome to another episode of impressions of america i'm simon and with me as always is toby hi toby hi simon unfortunately vaughn is not able to make today's show because she is unwell so vaughn hope you feel better soon On today's show, we'll be looking at the Russian-American writer Iron Rand, who is best known for her two best-selling novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, and for developing a philosophical system she named Objectivism. And to help us discuss Iron Rand is writer Ben Sixsmith, a contributor to various publications, including The Spectator and the author of Kings and Comedians, A Brief History of British-Polish Relations. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining us today from Poland. Hello, no problem. Iron Rand, born in 1905, grew up in relative wealth in St. Petersburg, Russia, thanks to her dad's success as a pharmacist. In 1917, her father's shop was seized by Bolshevik soldiers, forcing the family to resume life in poverty in the Crimea. The situation profoundly impacted Rand, who developed strong feelings towards the government uh, intrusion into the lives of individuals. She moved to Chicago in 1926 before then moving on to Hollywood. Her first major success as a writer was 1943's The Fountainhead. The Fountainhead, along with Rand's 1957 novel Atlas Shrugged, are considered key texts in objectivism, which uh, which Rand described as the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with product with productive achievement as his noble activity, and reason as his only absolute. Rand would go on to become a major figure among American conservatives and libertarians in the 20th century, and continues to this day to be a major influence for many on the right, including self-proclaimed Christian Marco Rubio. Rand, on the other hand, rejected all faith and religion, and was in favour of abortions on the grounds that an embryo has no rights, a child cannot acquire any rights until it is born. She also wrote, abortion is a moral right, which should be left to the sole discretion of the women involved. Morally, nothing other than her wish is the matter uh, to be considered. Both in life and death, Rand has uh, caused uh, passionate feelings towards her from all sides of the political spectrum. And I'm sure we'll get some uh, interesting thoughts from you guys uh, in today's show. Toby, can you start by going into the political landscape in Russia and America during Rand's younger days, and can you give us some context on how she developed her views?
1: Well, I mean, when Rand was young, she was born Alicia Rosenbaum. When she was born in, in, in Russia, she originally was living in quite, you know, affluence. She was, the, as you have uh, outlined, she was the daughter of a quite sort of prominent uh, chemist who... Had built up his own business after being one of the sort of uh, only Jews to be accepted in the the university he went to, so and then his wife uh, was a sort of known socialite. She came from a quite wealthy family. Her parents were incredibly wealthy, and so Anna, so Alicia Rosenbaum was born in, in into like quite you know um, well to do circumstances in. Russia at the time. She developed her perspective. Really, first, it's, you have to think about her formative experiences, and and they track quite well with people who read her books. Like she was uh, an outsized like intellectual talent as a as a child. She knew it, but she was also very awkward, and um, she didn't really talk to people really well. She was very in her head, and she also felt that that she was alienated from her friends. Because she was great, you know, she she thought that she was she was alienated because of her virtues. People disliked her because of her virtues, and then while she's developing these formative feelings, that the Russian Revolution happens, and her father's property, his shop, is being seized from him, and then soon after that, she has to move to Crimea, and you know, work as a, as a teacher, teaching soldiers. And so she's, she now feels that not only is, are people, you know, sort of hounding uh, talented people for their virtues, but the government can coerce people, it can force them to lose the things that they, they own because of their virtues. So she's developing, the, these, these ideas are bubbling in her head because of that, and then soon once things are sort of better in, in the parts of uh, St. Petersburg, they return. And the difficulty she has then is that her father doesn't want to work. He says that um, he's taking a moral stand as, as, as someone who had made a life for himself by himself, uh, that he would not work for the government. And, 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 and uh, Alicia is quite proud of her father. But that forces Alicia to work, and then s- soon enough, Alicia also has to go to Petrograd University, where she's indoctrinated in Marxist ideology, which you know she despises. But she also learns about Friedrich Nietzsche and and um, and Aristotle, and she, she's she's. I mean, some of Alicia's friends said that that Nietzsche had gotten to those ideas before she had. She she. She'd He's beaten you to all your ideas. This this idea of a of a sort of a, a, a volitional being, a, a being who thinks because he thinks he knows himself, and because he knows himself, he's rational, and because he's rational, he can, he, he he's able to persuade and in, enter into voluntary contracts. And she's developing this idea, taking it really, I mean, from Nietzsche, and just secondly, she's from Aristotle, and and, and then. She, she, once, while she's developing these ideas, she's also watching a lot of American cinema, and then then you have you have this um, I think you have this framing of of Russia being the way it is under sort of a, an emerging communist dictatorship, and then you have America in these films, and she's watching you know forty films a year. She's she's really getting into into films, and she's going and she's also transferring from just sort of a a historical study towards film school and so she's learning through watching these films that america is is this 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 land of opportunity you know this 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 place where people are always busy they they are getting rewarded for their virtues and it becomes i think maybe you know it's 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 almost this shining city on a hill and it and it's a great contrast between the, the 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 sort of dank and repressive world that she's, she's, she's emerging from. And she, she, while she's in Russia, she still develops depression. She's, she's in a relationship, but it's not really going anywhere. The, the world, that, and then she thinks that if she finishes film school, she's going to end up, you know, doing propaganda movies for the, for the Russian um, s- cinema industry. So she hatches this plan with, with people who are relatives of her parents, in Chicago, to go off to America, she tells the the Russian bureaucrats that that actually she's going off to learn about American cinema, so she, she can come back and improve the Soviet um, propaganda techniques. And she manages some way to 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 enter into America. And wh- wh- while she enters into America, she's in sort of the the Calvin Coolidge period, so she's really able to, I think, um, through. Living in America in Chicago, and then living in in Hollywood to actually live this life that she she had always dreamed of. But sp- pretty soon, you know, ac- you know, according to her, that you you know you have the Great Depression and the the sort of repressive government techniques that she had, um, she had she had seen in Russia start to take hold in from her perspective in in America. So and then. So that's really the context for Russia and and America in that period. Um, Ben, can you
0: tell us a bit more about objectivism and also kind of her work in the 40s and 50s and the the reaction in America to that work?
2: Absolutely. So just to pick up where uh, Toby left off, she uh, somehow entered into uh, screenwriting Uh, As far as I'm aware, she had a very chance encounter with uh, the director Cecil uh, DeMille and managed to work her way up through uh, an extremely dog-eat-dog industry with a very impressive level of industry, especially speaking in uh, her second language. And uh, she entered into writing fiction She wrote uh, two novels, I think, Wheeler Living and Anthem, both of which were uh, kind of individualist, uh, dystopian uh, literature. Uh, And then finally, she wrote The Fountainhead, which was tremendously popular about this kind of great pioneering modernist architect, Howard Rourke. Who's struggling to realise his own ambition and not be constrained by these stale conformists and uh, greedy socialists, and that's where she uh, really began to form what became objectivism, which was her her ideology, which had at its centre the idea of. Uh, what we might call selfishness. I don't think she would have used the word in such a kind of Gordon Gecko way. Uh, (laughs) But it really encompassed several uh, different aspects of thought. It had its own epistemology, uh, which was based on her famous quote, A equals A, or really the idea that uh, the world we perceive is the world that is and was very critical of any idea that um, the world that we uh, see through our senses, that we experience through our senses, is illusory. Uh, It had its own moral ideology, which was based around uh, pursuing one's own uh, self-interest. And it had its own aesthetic aspects which was really about this kind of romantic idea of art as something that elevates the human spirit and directs him to great things. Because while while she was definitely committed to the idea of individuals pursuing their own self-interest, that wasn't just kind of, you know, sitting around snorting cocaine and buying yachts. It was very much about kind of achieving uh, what she saw as great things, great works of art, great works of architecture and building oneself into this kind of ideal, rational uh, human
0: being. So can you tell us a little bit about Rand's relationship with other parts of the new right and with the kind of political scene at that time in, in America?
2: Absolutely. It was kind of uh, kind fractious of and yet respectful uh, to begin with. I think when she was introduced to William Buckley, who was uh, the kind of young genius of the right at that time and had uh, established uh, the National Review, which would be extremely influential in 60s conservatism. uh, She got uh, very much on the wrong foot by telling him he was much too intelligent to believe in God and uh, which did not endear to her to him. Uh, Later on, when she published At the Shrugged, Whittaker Chambers uh, would write a very famous and very damning review of the book, which essentially argued that uh, everyone ran disliked in the book, which was basically pretty much not everyone, but most people, the mass of humanity were uh, portrayed in such a loathsome way that you could hear the voice. of the author saying to the gas chambers, go. Uh, so even even if conservatism then was very much pro-capitalist and committed to a small state in most aspects of life, at least not foreign policy, uh, the kind of fundamentalism with which she emphasised uh, the importance of the individual over the herd were seen as uh, excessively ideological, if not cruel. Uh, And even many libertarians didn't get along with her. Uh, Murray Rothbard, uh, an anarcho-capitalist, thought that her and her followers were very cult-like. Robert Nozick uh, disagreed with uh, her ethical system. And yet her, her books were so popular that people even as they criticized her, they did have a kind of guarded respect for her because in most ways she was more successful than they were with uh, the general reading public. Uh, so she she maintained this kind of popularity that earned her that respect while being by and large disdained in intellectual and academic circles.
0: Uh- Toby, can you tell us a little bit about how the uh, methods used by Rand to to circulate objectivism?
1: Well, I think the key method that Rand used to circulate objectivism was her novels. Her novels had a profound effect on many readers. The kinds of readers that were that were uh, that really engaged with her novels were businessmen, were people who were just engineers, doctors, sort of. Members of of the sort of um, emerging bourgeois class, in in America, I think a lot of people would say that actually, I, I read your novel and I feel like it has changed my life. I I never used to read before, but now and I feel like I I, I read everything. And and so, what happened is that her novels, which you know, I mean, they it rivaled um, Jack Kerouac's book on the road when when it came out. And so she, and and, um, when she had Atlas Shrugged, so it it really seemed that she had emerged as as one of the sort of great American writers at the time. And um, her novels have carried on selling hundreds of thousands of copies into the the 2010s. They were still selling hundreds of thousands of copies, and when the financial uh, crash happened because people started feeling that you know the the world of Atlas Shrugged was 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 coming to you know being fully realized. It, it started to sell even more copies. So the the main instrument of of getting the words out was her novels, and she she also she felt that art had had a, really an ability to to change people and. So that's, that's really how, how she did it. But then her other methods of, of trying to sort of get the word out have to do with how she tried to sort of talk with or engage with other members of the, of the right at the time. For example, as um, Ben says, you know, she, she told William F. Buckley, you're much too, you know, March too, um, <laughs> you know the, <laughs> you're much too intelligent to believe in God. And Buckley, you know, immediately he hated her. But the, the, the difficulty for Buckley is that she actually was was much more entrenched in the old right than he was. And Buckley's fusionism really came in a period after um, Rand had established herself in in the right. So, um, and I think R- Rand's. I think part of the reason why she she got a lot of people on the right to read her book and to engage with her book is that Rand, she basically had a a um, a moral argument for capitalism. She basically capitalism is virtuous because it is, is you know man is a, is a free individual, and and I think in her book Atlas Shrugged, there's a there's a speech by the sort of a, a playboy and industrialist called uh, Francisco Danconia. And Danconia, and someone t- tells Danconia um, um, that money is the root of all evil. And he says, you think money is the root of all evil? And, 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 it, and she it, the book rolls into a speech about how, actually, money is about voluntary exchange. And that voluntary exchange sort of enables everything in society so the 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 that 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 bring you know money to, to people the, the the sort of the central um sort of theory behind money is 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 is, is non-coercion and that that i mean that can't be evil at all and, and and she makes actually quite um for many reasons a convincing argument for you know for feelings they have held especially at a time in the 1940s and 50s when the, the 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 Roosevelt administration, the Truman administration and the Eisen administration were installing new sort of um, de- departments of price controls, new de- new sort of uh, bureaucratic methods for you know countering uh, recessions through counter-cyclical demand side policies. Liberals really felt that you could guide society that you could you could sort of take things around and tweak things around and and, and sort of guide society and and they would they would they didn't really view selfishness as a necessary um, good in the way that conservatives had in the way that classical um, classical economists had had and Rand felt that there was a real hole there and she she was able to fill that hole by creating this she, she always used to call her novels um romantic realism these romantic these, these the characters were they're not really characters a lot of people said that ha- 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 Rand's characters are really flat they were ciphers for these you know much more important um, philosophical views about the world and rand's um character john galt is a character in in the novel Atlas Shrugged, who basically tells a lot of the industrialists, the the intellectuals, uh, philosophers, artists, all the all the product productive people in society, that you know because the 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 government in Atlas Shrugged is sort of reversing all the all the, all the values, all the virtues, um, are now uh, cast aside and 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 freedom of justice as aside in her view for you know um, for needing to give yourself for other people and and that denial of self Rand feels is, is morally um, sort, sort of um, beyond the pale and the John Galt character gets all of these people and removes them to society and then in her novel society starts to crumble so you just imagine businessmen and, and artists who who read this book saw themselves in these in these characters saw themselves as people who were bringing you know growth to society and that the 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 liberal governments had you know looked to basically steal from them in 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 their perspective so there was a a sort of an outer rim of people who were really interested in, in the book then there was a sort of a wiser concentric circle of sort of uh people on the right you know intellectuals like william f buckley who were trying to create a right when there really wasn't a right you know i mean in the before the 1950s i mean there was nobody there was rand but there was there wasn't that many other people there wasn't people with real um national platforms and so she that gap and she gave people a real moral um, justification for capitalism. And but that moral justification for capitalism immediately went up against Buckley because Buckley felt that it was Christianity, basically. And he was Catholic, but he was he felt that it was Christianity that was going to be the bulwark against the the, the collective Stalinist terror. That he felt was um, sort of engulfing much of the world, and 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 I think that's why the 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 Chambers review is so visceral. But an interesting thing, and as uh, Ben uh, about Cham- 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 um, Chambers is that Whitaker Chambers actually sent William F. Buckley some private correspondences, he, and he said that actually, you know. Um, he felt that capitalism needed to be defended in its own right and he he also noted that he felt that he couldn't really be be considered a conservative either because he noticed that there was a tension between christianity and and, and free enterprising and, in and capitalism he didn't he didn't really sort of talk about this publicly but he he sent those um, letters to to William F. Buckley and it was part of the reason why their relationship started to dissolve. So you can see. And then there's also other, so there was a libertarian called Chamberlain who like many people sent letters to the National Review because they were very unhappy with um, the decisions that Buckley had made to write a scathing review of, of at the Shrugged and, and said that, you know, if, if only Rand had introduced a member of faith to her people who would be saved by John Galt and remove his society. Then, then you know it would all be fine. So there was always this tension before William F. Buckley had established, really established the fusionism that would really be encapsulated in the, in the Reagan administration, sort of the Christianity and uh, voluntary free enterprise philosophy. There was really this tension in in, um, in, the, in the in the New Right.
0: Um Ben could you just tell us a little bit about how the the left saw Rand I mean we've got the the New Deal America of the 1930s and a you know a a, a more liberal approach to um maybe um government during that time than then perhaps Rand would would want how how did how did the left and center left see Rand as she progressed through the 30s and 40s and then on to her success in the 50s
2: uh, to a large extent, they didn't, which sounds um, hard to believe. But to some extent, they did just bypass her. So her, uh, her popular success really wasn't matched by any kind of academic consideration at all. Uh, and for whatever reason, uh, if you were to be in the university system at the time, Uh, you wouldn't have encountered her work. People just didn't think that uh, epistemologically it was coherent enough to be worth engaging with uh, or as art it was worth engaging with. But uh, gradually she became this kind of uh, figure of loathing. She almost came to represent everything uh, leftists find uh, detestable about capitalism to the point that there was uh, an Adam Curtis documentary series which comically <laughs> overstated her impact on uh, American politics because she did make such a compelling figure of hatred and scorn. Uh, so it's difficult for, for me to think of any very specific critiques from the left because they've really never taken her seriously.
0: Do you think the, the imaging around Rand and the kind of the, the, the later kind of figurehead amongst certain politicians on the right has kind of built up her status beyond maybe what it was, especially as far as the left were concerned?
2: I definitely think it has in the sense that I don't think in policy terms she's been that influential. There's a kind of almost conspiracy theory view of history that's developed around her, because she did have connections with some fairly influential people, mm-hmm. uh, Alan, Gre- Alan Greenspan mm-hmm. was a member of her kind of inner circle. Uh, yes. But if you look at his later career, it's quite hard to divine any kind of objectivist trajectory. It mm-hmm. would be hard to look at his career and say, oh, this is, this is where uh, Rand's influence was playing a role. Uh, I think almost her influence has been uh, more indirect in that, as Toby says, she kind of romanticized capitalism in a way that someone like uh, Friedman or someone like Hayek couldn't. She gave it this uh, this grandiosity, uh, almost a kind of quasi uh poetic view of capitalism that uh, it wouldn't have otherwise had. So I, I think her influence has been more indirect and uh, almost
0: artistic through her novels. Yeah. yeah. Definitely... Sorry, Toby, go.
1: Well, yeah, as Ben says, I mean, on the left, they really, it's just been a lot of, of silence, I think, you know, purposeful silence, all this. But I think that. Um, in the news around the time, there was, you know, people would, reporters would sort of go to her gatherings, the MBI gatherings that were set up by Nathaniel Brandon, who was one of her, you know, it was almost like the anthony of um, the, the court of, of Rand at the time. And um, they would sort of capture how Rand would treat people at these gatherings. Uh, people would ask questions and Ran would snap at them and, and, and call the the person a fool, and then go on to to whatever she was saying, and the the, the gatherings in in the left, um, sort of in the media, and not just the left really. It was it was uh, you know the liberal, the broad liberal consensus that that that, that was in power in the fifties and sixties, and they would write that you know these were sort of cultish like gatherings that people were lifting. Um, Atlas Shrugged, like it was a hymnal or, or something, and there was this, there was a der- derisive um, sort of an, an ironic way of, of writing about Rand and Gore Vidal, who you know he ran for um, the House of Representatives in 1960, and 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 Vidal you know said that you know you know she was obviously she he thought she was very selfish in her creed was the height of immorality, as he said, and he also noted that. Although this was true, she was the only writer that people knew on the campaign trail, which is always odd. Even though you know, the the a- academics aren't writing about her, and even literary critics and people have gone back and seen that, that there's really no, there's no literature review on Dagny Taggart as a you know feminist icon and things like that. But there's this there's this this bubbling up of people who know about her. And uh, I think that's what Gore Vidal saw. And actually, Rand did this big interview with uh, on. Um, I think it was. She, she did a big interview. I think with with um, Wallace. I think it was on PBS, and um, one of the the producers on the the show had become sort of uh, indoctrinated into. The, um the, the MBI lectures and um so they brought Rand onto the show and the other producers were really scathing about bringing Rand onto the show they thought she was a kook they as, as many say she the height of selfishness so and then in in um sort publications like Newsweek they would uh, and The Washington Post, in, in the 1960s, they would write that, you know, corporate the children of corporate executives and lawyers and and engineers should really be wary because on college campuses, even though it's not being taught, people are discussing Ayn Rand like they, they were discussing Donston Fablin a generation ago. So there's this sense that the left, you know, in many ways tried to sort of be as, quiet about her as possible but she she was really getting into the popular consciousness in a in a in a quite uh, i think romantic way
0: that seems quite interesting then that there does seem to be a uh disconnect then between on the sort of academic side of it who reject her work um almost from a triviality point of view compared to maybe on a populist approach how well the books are selling and how maybe she is digging into parts of america which is kind of unconnected to the uh, more academic scene um you touched there on on the the youth of the, the period would you say that's where the large parts of the growth were for rand
1: yeah, Rand, I mean, it was really Nathaniel Brandon. He's almost like the PR manager of Rand. So he set up the objectivist newsletter, and he would write about psychology, Rand would write about, you know, uh, objectivism, and Alan Greenspan would actually write about economics. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sold quite well, people would go to they would go to MBI to see these um, lectures and the, to read the objective of the newsletter, and some people would even have tapes of MBI meetings. In who, who, people who can be in New York, they would they would watch these tapes in other, other states. And I and I suspect that on what Nathaniel Brandon also did is he set up a lecture circuit. So she would he would she would go to Princeton and she would go to other universities, and they, they would always be like, you know, bomb-storming events with people shouting, I, I ran, calling people fools, and then she would, you know, outline her objectivist views and um, talk about, generally, generally her views about American culture and American life. And so and on college campuses, she, she was gaining i think um a real following and i think it's it's important as you pointed out in the beginning you know she had this view on abortion and she also had a view on the draft because she thought the the draft was non-volitional that people were being coerced so she campaigned with um a group of young republicans to try to push nixon and the draft so there's a, there's a sense, and I think on this podcast we've touched on a lot of groups like the Weather Underground and the the John Birch Society, and the New Left. And there's a and and, and in the American landscape in the '60s, there's a sense that people are looking for something new, and they're looking for, and 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 even like psychiatrists. Uh, you know, when people back in back in the '50s and '60s, people would know, go to psychiatrists, and it would always be like. Much more than to today, people would complain about, you know, um, that I'm not being my true self. You know, today it's much more like, what should I be? And so, there's a sense that people were looking for uh, an uh, an outlet. It, it, it's it's the same thing with the human potential movement, and the same thing with the 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 weather underground and the new left. There there's a there's a feeling that people want is to sort of be much more actualized. And actually, Rand, really unlike sort of other parts of the conservative movement, gave them that um, and that outlet because she basically said that you know you you should be uh, a hero and uh, you you should find a uh, work that is uh, the reflection of your of your values and then you know i mean what the implications for the social state are you know quite you know actually you know, um, <laughs> pretty stark but it 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 fed into a need at the time even though you know you know it for producers and academics and people like that she was a kook and you know you know people branded her as a, as a fascist at the, at the time know. Yeah?
2: Absolutely. I don't think uh, one should uh, underestimate as well the extent to which uh, her kind of background in popular culture was significant. Because while I wouldn't say that books like Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugs uh, or even earlier books like Anthem have any deep aesthetic value uh, she was fairly <laughs> proficient. At, she, well, she was fairly proficient at weaving in these kind of uh, heroic, uh, romantic tales. There's always some kind of love interest. The main character is always some kind of dashing, uh, charismatic guy. There's always these uh, just scheming, loathsome people they're opposing. Uh, so she's not just uh, uh, trying to, she's not just trying to appeal to people's reason, even if she made a bit of a fetish out of reason. She is, uh, like in the phrase romantic realism, she's trying to appeal to their, uh, the side of them, which is entertained and which, uh, lives vicariously through, uh, these stories.
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, she as a child, she was actually the the friend of Olga Nabokov, who was um um Nabokov the the the, the author of Lolita's um sister and uh, and, she, and Nabokov's father was actually in the constitutional government, so he was he was actually an, almost like an aristocrat. And um someone interviewed her about Lalita Lolita when it was, and, and, and you know, they wanted to talk about sort of the, the complex um, literary sort of methods that Nobukov used in, in Lolita, and Rand really just wanted to talk about, you know, the, if Olga remembered her and th- things like that, but I think that the, the, the striking, there's a striking contrast between like a writer like Nobukov, who, you know, and like many other writers um, um, at the time, even Kerouac, uh were really trying to free people. You know that Rand's characters were much less complex. It was, it was, it wasn't so much high art as it was pop art, and and I think is probably why she's been much better received with the wider public and with people who uh who had degrees but in science than you know than than academics um yeah yeah
2: absolutely uh and another kind of interesting difference between them is Nabokov very much emphasized kind of style and aesthetics and Rand was intensely ideological so while she did have this kind of romantic side, she judged art based uh, very much on whether she thought it had the right, kind of, the right kind of message or the right it was sending out the right kind of impression. She had this phrase, sense of life. It had to have the right uh, sense of life, uh, you know, building up man rather than uh, dwelling on his limitations or weaknesses. I think she once said that uh, Beethoven made evil music it just didn't quite fit in with her kind of her, her sense of life uh so if she was going to read uh lolita she wouldn't be thinking so much about the prose she'd be you know thinking heavily about what uh what kind of sense of life humbert humbert was giving up uh hopefully not a positive impression uh
0: yeah i,
1: I thought just about the prose it, It's a it's fantastic books yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it
0: is interesting. Was, Sorry, onigo.
2: Uh, yeah, just to finish, she was. Yeah, she was. She was just extremely ideological. Uh, everything had to be kind of rationally justified. When when Nathaniel Brandon, uh, who she was romantically involved with, started um, sleeping with someone else, she wrote this big diatribe about how it just wasn't rational for him to do it. Uh, <laughs> and there's a, there's a funny line. Uh, Murray Rothbard wrote a little play about the kind of cult of Rand. And my favorite line in it is when uh, one of her, her admirers is offering someone a cigarette and they say, oh, would you like a cigarette? This is a very rational brand. <laughs> uh, because everything had, to be, everything had to be worked into this kind of worldview. It was uh, her, 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 uh, her leading kind of representative after her death, Leonard picoff said it was a closed system objectivism you, ha- you had to agree with each aspect of it because mm-hmm. each each aspect of it was fundamental to the whole
1: yep and nathaniel brandon when he he was reflecting on the time that he spent with rand and, you know how he was tailoring these lectures and events he basically said that that there was a few principles that Rand was the person who knew the most in the world. That everything that Rand felt was irrational was irrational. That Nathaniel Brandon, who was close to Rand, was almost as important, and, and his views were almost as essential and almost um, as axiomatic. And I think there's a there's a view that Nathaniel Brandon, when he reflects back on the time he spent with her, he, like he was creating a cult. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was a, it was a cult and, and Maury Rothbard saw that it was a cult and the people that, uh, the Washington Post sort of saw it was, as a cult as well. It was, um, you know, she, she was, she was creating a closed system and even, they, even Maury Rothbard said that it was, it was almost Stalinist in this way.
2: Absolutely. But, as, uh, sorry, i jumped in again, uh, No problem. Thank you. She almost had a a kind of vanguardist attitude, except once she had her vanguard, uh, she was very bad at extending it. So people read her novels and they loved her novels, but she wasn't so effective at promoting the whole system. So she had all of these little newsletters that not many people wanted to read and she had this small group of admirers uh, but it just kind of, her her charisma was so essential to it that it just kind of gravitated around her.
1: Yeah, so once she died, it all sort of balkanized. There was sort of um, Leonard Peikov and then other members had differences of opinion on the objectivism and Picoff wanted to do some things and other people wanted to do some things with it. And so there was this, 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 this deep balkanization. And then once, um, Barbara Brandon in her memoir had said that, had, had had talked about the affair that Rand had had and how manipulative she had, she had been in the affair. You know, she, she was originally living with o, um, O'Connor who was an artist but she was bored of him, and then she started sleeping with Nathaniel, and then she told her husband and Barbara that it was rational. She she sat them both down. She said it was rational, and that um, because uh, Rand was his highest virtue, that their relationship um, was rational, and that they should give them the opportunity to just have sex, basically. Which um, Barbara and, and her husband were, you know, in, in, originally quite shocked at, but then they just basically accepted it because everybody accepted what what man wanted, really. Can you imagine can that, you imagine
2: being started... on If she'd been posting on Reddit, <laughs> my uh, my husband <laughs> is, <laughs> it's is a cock uh, hole uh... sleeping with a libertarian cult leader.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It, it does bring up an interesting point though. I mean she was a product of her time with regards to uh, being involved in early Hollywood perhaps if she was around now, she would just simply make her political ideology through TikTok instead. Um, I don't know if that would have the same impact, but um, it, it it is interesting to think about her, um, I suppose her how she got her points across. I mean, from what I understand, she was trying to write screenplays when she was like eight years old. So I mean yeah. she was she, she was. That's the medium that she chose, and she saw. And I, I guess the fact that she became a populist figure, maybe more than an academic figure in some regards, is is a, a an interesting play on how how she initially saw the role of her writing. I guess. i um, just yeah, trying to. Th- it, sorry. She really
1: does it. have like a pop background. You know, she she her parents are very cosmopolitan, so she read a lot of French. Um, literature I mean you know, she she read you know Victor Hugo and things like that but she read a lot of pop stories about knights and ladies and then you know when she was at Petrograd University she watched a lot of you know American uh, Hollywood movies that were being produced at the time which was again for wide audiences so she comes out of a you know sort of a milieu that is focused on trying to Um, grab as many people as 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 possible most definitely
0: so just moving things forward then um, before we move on to her legacy was was there any connection that she had with any individual politicians through her lifetime that she made connections with or that she influenced directly
1: well she made some connections with Goldwater, she wrote to him, and uh, he wrote back to her. And she and she hadn't campaigned for anyone, so she refused to campaign for Eisenhower. They all hated Eisenhower, Buckley. All of them, you know, they all hated Eisenhower. And she, you know, she she wasn't interested in the campaign since the Wilkie campaign, which is the first mm-hmm. campaign that she really got into, and she she was on that campaign learning about American life, really. And she hadn't campaigned for anyone. And so, so she, she saw Goldwater and um, she was really interested in his campaign, she thought he talked uh, quite directly, she liked his, his views, and then she wrote him a speech, unsolicited, and Barbara Brandon walked to um, his office and handed uh, one of the staffers uh, the speech, it was never used. But there was a sense in which that she had become she had become more politically active in that period. She had gone from a a novelist um, to someone who was writing these objective newsletters and someone who actually wanted to have a say in the political process. And she, once Goldwater had lost, she felt that he had lost because he did not have a real. Um, Sort of the uh, complete philosophy behind him. So yeah, she 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 was definitely um, emotionally attached to to the to the Goldwater campaign in 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 her in her life. Um, yeah, but I would say with Re- Reagan, it's it's I mean it's 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 in terms of policy, it's as, as Ben said, it's hard. I mean policy, you know, and many things, um, whether it's um, capital controls or moving to monetary policy from demand-side like policy and and um the, the cut, cutting of taxes that, that, that reagan did policy did become more sort of fiscally conservative but in terms of actual policies finding rand i think probably because it was it was a broad romantic um energy that she gave to capitalism the fact that um, people like Alan Greenspan were, you know, well with Rand and then were with um, the Ford and um, Reagan administrations is, is something, but it's, it's not a lot, but I think the, the people like the New York Times at the time called Rand the sort of, almost like the, 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 the novelist laureate of the Reagan administration. And, but I would say that in the in the years since you've had people like Paul Ryan, who's started to give his staffers the uh, you know Atlas Shrug to read. You have Rand Paul, and, and and I know Ron and Rand Paul both, Rubio, yeah, yeah, Rubio as well. But you have Ron and Rand Paul, and 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 obviously Rand Paul denies that he was named after. <laughs> rounds at all but does say that he was a fan i mean rex Tillerson, who was in the trump government also says and mike pompeo so it's 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 given a lot of businessmen and uh, sort of ideological conservatives a uh, sort of a romantic uh, bomb to their political perspectives i think
0: um before we move on to legacy just kind of one final question on where Where did you think Rand sat in the American or the Republican ideology as things were moving through, you know, you have the Southern strategy and you have Mm -hmm. how the conservatives were kind of evolving with regards to how they were, you know, the Republican Party itself evolved evolved hugely from, you know, the the early days of the 20th century up up until, you know, you have someone like Reagan. How does Rand fit into the the larger landscape of the Republican and right wing of America in the twentieth century?
1: Well, I think you have to go to William F. Buckley, who, when he wrote his obituary, firmly felt that you know she had had a an ideology that he had defeated essentially mm-hmm. you know and um and he was quite sort of cl- clear clear about that, but i I think that as as I sort of touched on, what emerges is that a lot of young conservatives clearly have been influenced by her novels. You know, so a lot of people who sort of grew up in like Connecticut and uh, the New York boarding schools always say, you know, that we were we were either post or you know or Rand or post Rand. You know, so there's there's definitely a lot of um, people who were. Influenced by her, but I think in after the sixties, you know, after sort of communitarian sort of policies in the sixties, things like the Great Society, there was a rollback in um, in in the social safety net and uh, and welfare and, and things like that into the seventies and eighties. But there was also a I think a a new sort of Christian right movement that emerged that 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 seemed to be you know part of the conservative movement that William F Buckley had created at the National Review so the difficulty is the you know if it's whether it's the the the, the fusionism of William F Buckley or whether you know Rand Rand's views became um the, the 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 force behind american conservative was clearly William F. Buckley but what i would say is that today i think whether it's in um silicon valley or in on wall street there is more you know you're, you're seeing around people who've named their companies the Gola group people who are named after rand people who have kids named after rand i mean I think that um, Silicon Valley, for for example, there's I think there's a there's a view that it's it's a, a sort of mix between the left wing libertarianism of the 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 '60s and then sort of the right uh, entrepreneurial culture, and because Rand's uh, ideology is very much really anti-Christian, I mean. The the question is, is there a tension between um, Christianity and conservatism today? And are are we seeing that now? And are we seeing, oh, how have we seen a a Randian moment in American politics? Especially because it wasn't like, although she, she listed a bunch of classically liberal policies that she supported, it wasn't like she was a policy wonk is 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 this is is um the is Iran the ideological i't know um fountainhead of american conservatism today what, what what would you say to that ben
2: well i definitely think she uh she must have had some influence i'm sure just to add to what you said i'm sure she uh she smoothed the ground for the kind of social liberalization of uh, the American right uh, through the 70s and 80s. I mean, she, uh, she didn't like homosexuality, but she opposed laws against it. Uh, she didn't like the term pro-choice, but she was pro-choice. Uh, she opposed racism. She was pro-immigration. So again, even if it was indirect, she wasn't specifically campaigning for these policies. She must have had an ideological influence on uh American uh conservatism. But I I I, think ev- I I think even if uh even if uh Trump will say that he's a fan of the Fountainhead or uh Marco Rubio will say he's a fan of Rand uh I don't think there's been a clear influence of her work uh, on their politics. Their politics is uh, more kind of based on uh, the nation and institutions than on the supreme individual. So uh, I think she had an influence, but not a kind of dominant influence.
1: But what what about the moment with... Um... You know when Paul Ryan was the um, runnings of vice president, and you had Ron Paul. What about that moment, sort of the, the 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 post Bush, the Obama era? Did you think conservatism in the Obama era was more tilted towards Rand's ideals?
2: Definitely, the kind of the the kind of Tea Party movement uh, mm-hmm. had a lot of Randian features. Uh, people were suddenly talking about John Galt again. Uh, I don't know, you know, looking back at the Tea Party movement, I don't know if those were the kind of people Rand would have uh, (laughs) considered the ideal (laughs) inhabitants of uh, Galt's Gulch. Uh, uh, But they certainly perceived themselves in that kind of way, many of them. Uh, But someone like Paul Ryan, I mean... Even if he was an individualist in vague policy terms, it's very hard for me to look at him and listen to him and imagine that he had any sense of uh, the kind of spiritual individualism that Rand preached. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he was more of a kind of right-wing technocrat who thought you could just kind of tax cut your way into a, uh, a safe and prosperous system but he didn't have that kind of moral vision that stands out in Rand's work
0: so before we uh, kind of finish up the the episode on Rand I think it would be a good opportunity to actually get both your individual own take on Rand and uh, how much you like or dislike Uh, Toby I'll start start with you I know you are um, you have some feelings towards towards Rand can you uh, can you start with those
1: well, I don't know. I, I I sort of I feel that Rand, you know, I, I think Rand is very much like the people who who, who read her novels. You know, they, they're they're always like the sort of young, uh, very intelligent, and you know, they sort of they they view they can do anything, and they they have contempt for you know other other people. There's a lot of people who. You know, um, they listen to Rands, and then they they also you know they they like heavy metal and stuff like that. You know, when they were they're growing up, sort of formative, sort of loner uh, intellectuals. And I think that what what that really brings out, I think, about Rand is that, I mean, you can see it in Atlas Shrugged. It's just hatred. You know, there's a lot of hatred in. I mean, I and mean, people, uh, whitaker Chambers. Noted it. You know, other reviewers noted it. There's a, there's a hatred for the common folk. There's a hatred for people who don't share the the abilities or don't believe the same thing that that, that they do. There's a and there's a there's a there is a sort of a big um, and there is a it's it's both a hatred but also like a a, a little bit of a a, a Stalinist almost like this is the only way to think and this is the only way to 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 be a human being and i think that because of that there is a profound lack of empathy in a lot of uh rand's work and i think it's it's very different from the the buckleyite vision and different from a sort of um Sort of one nation vision of of conservatism, and I think pe- when people um, when sort of conservatives um, criticised Rand, uh, other conservatives in National Review who were friends with William of Buckley said that you know conservatism is about history, it's about learning from history and creating organ organic societies. Rand was like you know let's burn it all down, every man for himself. You know, we're going to create a society where, you know, the the, the 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 strong rule and the weak, if they don't, you know, gain from the strong, um, the weak are victims um, or they are second handers or, you know, and then there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a it, it's, it is, it, for me, it is hatred. And it was also, there's also, there's a, as Whitaker Chambers said, you know, people who don't fit into this view, what are you going to do? with them and and i think that um the reason why it hasn't ever become policy because is because politicians have to go out there and talk about the nation they have to talk about a a feeling of communal togetherness it isn't just the sort of the mutterings of a sort of uh a very high functioning 14 year old you know
0: (laughs) and ben same question do you any uh any strong feelings one way or the other on uh, on our friend Rand?
2: Well, I mean, I do think in many ways she's uh, uh, a very impressive human being. I mean, uh, she left her homeland. She came to a new nation. She uh, began to speak in her second language. She worked to set her way up from, you know, not without help, but she worked her way up from the bottom to become this incredibly successful figure. She was nothing if not intensely ambitious and dedicated. So she had many qualities you have to admire. And uh, I think Gore Vidal said she had the most kind of comprehensively evil ideology or something. But I think even aspects of that you have to at least empathize with, if not share. Uh, like I say, I don't think it was just this kind of Gordon Gecko, make as much money as humanly possible ideology. She really had this, uh, this, um, this sense of man standing against a hostile nature. Uh, there's a passage, and for the life of me, I can't remember if it's in the Fountainhead or, in, uh, or at the Shrugged, where a man is standing inside a building looking out at the lightning and just reflecting on how amazing it is that we've been able to protect ourselves from uh, just the kind of hostilities of nature. Uh, But ultimately, I think, uh, uh, I remember a a quote by uh, Michael Oakeshott, the English conservative philosopher who, uh, when he was writing about libertarians, he said, uh, a plan To resist all planning might be preferable to its opposite, but it belongs to the same style of thought. And even if I can kind of have some empathy with Rand because she was so much reacting against the communist system, she fled. She was, at at least as ideological as the Marxists, she was fleeing. Uh, Everything had to be integrated into her ideology. Uh, no kind of uh, dissent or disagreement could be tolerated. And uh, even if she was this individualist in her work, she definitely felt entitled to uh, bully and boss around other people Uh, and this kind of uh, cruel streak in her life and her work. So as, as a person, she does have some qualities you have to admire, but I think, ultimately used towards uh, regrettable ends but
0: in a very funny way <laughs> Reg- regrettable ends but with humor I think that's uh so there is
1: one thing like the the Gordon gecko thing like she one of her I think it was one of her relatives she was she was uh, or she lived next door and the lady said I want to get things. Because I want other people to know that I have things. If if other people <laughs> had less things, I would have less things. And Ran looked at her like, "You don't. You're not an individualist. You 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 know you're you're not someone who appreciates um, the the greatness of, of man. You don't do things because of your you know individual need to to be rational and to be great. You're you know you you're or you're, you're, you're almost like a hedonist (laughs) and people have um criticized her in her work you know characters like francisco and danconia who are there's a lot of hedonistic both sexual and 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 and, you know uh, party scenes in in these in these books but i mean there is a sense that Rand deeply cared about you know the great inventors and figures and, and the scope of man's ambitions so there is is that but, you know, there's so many people that she hated, so many kinds of people that she hated, that I think for me, it, it just always ends up in, you know, like, uh, I, and I think um, Mike Wallace, asked her like, uh, you know, like, how many people um, deserve love, in your, in your view? And she said, not many. You know, it's, it's just, and that was it, you know. How many people were going to be, impressive enough to create the things that, that she deemed pe- people who had reached the, the scope or the 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 the, the who would had, who had become themselves or become th- th- men you know the, the 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 standards for humanity she set i think came out of a, a deep misanthropy yeah
2: well we do admire like human accomplishment we have to ask like to what end are we using it so if you do make a great scientific uh, invention that is impressive in and of itself but uh, I think the end she had quite an arid sense uh, of the ends to which they would be put because it was uh, so exclusive and so uh,
0: so narrow
1: Mm, exactly
0: well thank you guys uh for today's show i really enjoyed this one uh ben thank you so much for joining us
2: thank
0: you thank you parry
1: uh and toby thank you as always yeah it's always wonderful to speak and thanks a lot ben
0: yeah really appreciate it uh from myself simon from ben and toby uh thank you very much for listening and we will have another episode of impressions of america in the near future thank you and goodbye bye